If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 is our going to be our text for today, but it's also going to be our text for this Advent season. We'll be looking at uh, the first 18 verses in John throughout these next few weeks together. This morning we'll be looking at the first three verses together. John chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, it's our desire that you would meet us here today and that you would work in us what is needed. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true and that it's powerful. We ask, Lord, now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that our lives would be changed and that you would be glorified. And we commit this all to you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you have read or watched the series that uh, is old but very instructive to many of us, a series called Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The Chronicles of Narnia is a fictional series that C.S. Lewis wrote, really masterfully creating a story that's filled with biblical symbolism. One of the most obvious symbols in that series is that of Aslan, who symbolizes Christ. It's a lion in the story. In the Narnia series, Aslan is this powerful lion filled with a frightening majesty, but yet a gentleness that would draw in especially Lucy and Peter and Edmund. Specifically in the book Prince Caspian, there's a powerful scene as Lucy and the others, they're lost in Narnia and they're trying to make their way to Prince Caspian's camp. And during that part of the journey, Lucy experiences a surprise visit from Aslan. And as she encounters him on the way and on her journey, Aslan seems much bigger than she remembered the last time she saw him. As he welcomes her and, and they, they unite again, Lucy says to him, you're, you're so much bigger. To which Aslan replied, that is because you are a little older, little one. And she said, it's not because you are bigger. He said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You know, even though this book is a fictional work, Lewis was able to capture a truth about Christ that I think any growing Christian would realize. Every year we grow, we find him bigger. Not because he grows with us, but because he is who he is. And yet the reality, I think, often shows something much different. For many Christians, instead of finding a glorious, majestic, big Jesus, oftentimes we find something a little different. See, too many people follow and worship the Jesus of their own imagination, not the Jesus of the Bible. Even at Christmas, 
We tend to dilute and twist the message sometimes of the incarnation into something that suits our own tastes. Instead of Jesus being God in the flesh, he becomes something more like, we could say, Santa Claus. Scotty Smith, he's a pastor in Tennessee, he said this related to that very reality. He said, we may denigrate our Lord with a Santa Claus Christology. Jesus becomes Santa Christ. And like Santa, he simply asks whether we've been good. And thus Jesus becomes a kind of added bonus who makes a good life even better. But when we begin to understand the true Christmas narrative, the Bible strips away the cheap veneer that often covers the real truth of the Christmas story. Jesus did not come to add to our comforts. Jesus did not come to help those who help themselves or to decide whether or not we've been naughty or nice. The Jesus we know from Scripture came as a conquering king on a mission of deliverance where he would destroy the works of the devil once and for all in order to gather for himself a people who were once his enemies but now who were adopted children of the king. And friends, if we are going to have a Merry Christmas or a happy January or a good February, whatever season we're in, it's vital that we have a right understanding of Jesus Christ. Not an understanding of our own creation. Not an understanding of Jesus that we conjure up in our own imagination. But it's vital that we have an understanding of Jesus Christ as he's been revealed in Scripture as the one who is divine, as the one who is the true and living God in the flesh. And there's really nowhere better we could turn this morning to see that than the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you'll look with me at John chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm just going to read down to verse 3. We're going to be working through this passage for the next several weeks. Hear what John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, beginning now in verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, John presents us with the reality that we all would do well to affirm and believe, not just here this morning, but throughout the course of our lives. And it is this, Jesus is God in the flesh. What we're going to see here in these few verses is really three important aspects about the divinity of Christ as John begins to unfold this beautiful revelation of who Jesus truly is. And we'll see how that meshes up with the Jesus that so many people want to present us today. We're going to see three observations about the divinity of Jesus Christ. First of all, we need to see this truth, the fact that he is eternal. 
Jesus is eternal. The word, he, we're told, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, one of the, one of the reasons I think we are so tempted to reduce Jesus to something less than he truly is, I think is, it has to do with the starting point for many of us. Oftentimes, we want to start with the baby born in Bethlehem, don't we? And certainly the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, that's, that's where the gospel writers in those two occasions certainly begin the, the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. But one of the beauties about the gospel of John is that he starts before that. See, John reminds us here that the story of Christmas, the life of Christ, did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. It began in eternity past. The first words we read here in verse 1, in the beginning. And that should immediately take us back to a phrase that I'm sure many of us know from Genesis 1, 1. Or we read there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here John says, in the beginning was the word. Now, who is the word or what is the word? Now, if you jump down and cheat a little bit, verse 14, we get the answer in verse 14 and 17. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see in verse 17 that this grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Word is Jesus Christ. The Word that John is beginning to describe here is that of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand before moving on that we need to deal with some language here that John uses, the word. Why does he use that language? It seems odd to our ears, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. Why didn't he just say in the beginning was the son or was Jesus or why does he say the word? What is meant here by this word? Well, you could look at it in many, many different ways. We, we know from that period of time that in Greek literature, for example, the, the word logos, which is translated word here, was often used in reference to describe the, this principle of divine reason. It was this impersonal principle that was supposed to govern the universe, according to the Greeks, the philosophers. So this, this divine, this impersonal divine something out there was, was that which was the governing principle of the universe. That's what the Greeks would believe. And they would use this terminology regularly in their writings to refer to the divine logos. Well, John knew that, but he most likely picks up on this language, not from the Greeks, although he could have been using this word here to, to somewhat correct their notion, but he most likely picked up on this language from the Old Testament. You see, there in the Old Testament, the word, word, is often connected with God's powerful work in creation, his work in revelation, and his work in salvation. In creation, we see it, don't we, in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, the creation spoken into existence by the powerful word of God. In Psalm chapter 33, verse 6, we were told there by the psalmist, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were created. 
So we know that the word is active in creation, but also in what we call revelation. God revealing himself. We know that many times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we find phrases like in Isaiah 7 verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, or we will find time after time again, and the word of the Lord came to so and so, as God would reveal himself through revelation. But also in salvation, we could go to Psalm 107 and see this, for example, where we're told that the Lord sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their distress. So there was a deliverance that took place among the people of God by the word of God. And so in the Old Testament, you have God revealing himself through his word. You have God creating by his word and you have God saving by this word. And it's not until we get to the gospel of John that this word now becomes an actual person. So Jesus, we are told here, is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're told later this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what we have here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is now the perfect embodiment, the perfect and ultimate self-disclosure of who God is. The writer of Hebrews put it well in Hebrews 1 verse 1, long ago at many times and in many places, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So it's clear that this word is a reference to God and his activity, and now this word is made flesh. The reality of this word is it's eternal. This word is eternal. We see that there specifically in this passage. In the beginning was the word. This word was active in, in, in the beginning, in creation. Since the world has existed, the word has been, and even before so. This word, word, if I can use that as a way to say that, is, is, is a reference to Christ, the Son of God, who has always been. And we can pick up on other texts of Scripture to understand that. If you were to go to Proverbs chapter 8, there in chapter 8 we have the, the, the blessing of wisdom and this, this idea of wisdom being at work here. And one of the realities about who Jesus is is that he is the embodiment of God's wisdom In chapter 8, verse 27 of the Proverbs, it says, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Some say that Proverbs 8, 27 through 30 is the best commentary on John chapter 1 we have from the Old Testament. Jesus himself enraged the religious leaders of the day who were claiming allegiance to Abraham in John chapter 8. And Jesus, through some dialogue with them, he ends up responding. He said, listen, you may have your father Abraham, but truly, truly, I say before Abraham was, I am 
And what we're told in that text is that they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, why would they want to pick up stones to throw at Jesus? Simply because of a statement that he said. It's because they understood what he was saying. He was claiming divinity when he said that statement. We could go on to the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying to his father. And this is what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Listen, Jesus is the Son of God. And I know that that can be confusing sometimes because we use this language, but listen, just for a point of clarity, the Son of God has always been. He's eternal. The Son became flesh at the incarnation, and that's when the name Jesus was given to him. And so we use Jesus in reference to his earthly ministry and beyond, but it's still a reference to the one, the pointing to the one who is eternal, There have been groups who have denied this truth throughout the centuries. There was a man named Arius who came along in the 300s. And he taught that while Jesus was certainly God-like, he was still a created being and therefore not God. It prompted the writing of the Nicene Creed in 325 AD, where they sought to clarify the eternal nature of the Son of God. The Jehovah Witnesses continue to hold tightly to this view today that that Jesus indeed was a created being, and they've got a translation of the Bible that tries to prove their point. In fact, if you go read the, was it the New World Translation that they produce, they they redo verse 1 a little bit, where they write it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g, and a little definite article there in front. He was a God, but he wasn't God. You say, well, shame on them. Well, think if memory serves me correctly, there was, I think I referenced this a couple of months ago, there's a survey recently done among American evangelicals called the State of Theology. I think this is done primarily through Ligonier Ministries. And one of the common, one of the most referred to statements out of that State of Theology Survey among American evangelicals. That's you. All right? Among American evangelicals, 78% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the highest and most glorious created being, or something like that. That he was the first and highest created being that God from God. 78% said, yes, that's true. 13% said, no, it's not true. It's not true. He's not the highest and greatest created being because he wasn't created. He's always been. How can 78% of American evangelicals believe that Jesus was a created being? When the Bible clearly says that he is the eternal son who became flesh. So why is this important? Why is it important that we see the eternal nature of the son of God? Well, there's several things we could say and we could go down a lengthy list this morning of why this is absolutely critical. Why, why it is that it's important that we see Jesus for who he is, the eternal nature of the Son. Well, a couple of things here. Number one is that it sets him apart from all others. Whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Vishnu or Joseph Smith or just go on down the list, 
All of these came into existence at some point in history. They were born. They were created. And you say, well, Jesus was born. You're right. But it was the Son of God who had been becoming flesh. There is no human or anything else in creation that we can apply this to. And so, therefore, it makes Jesus distinct. It makes him God. The fact that he is eternal sets him apart from all others. Another thing that that I think is important for us to see, at least this morning, is that, that it answers a longing we all have. No matter what our culture might say, there seems to always be a longing for that which is transcendent, that which is beyond us. I mean, just look at all the superhero books and films that come out, right? What makes Christianity unique is that the transcendent, eternal God has come to earth in human form. Not just to visit, but to actually bring hope to a broken and fallen world. The eternal God has reached down into time to bring us what we could never gain on our own. Think about that. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not us reaching up to God, but it's rather God coming down to us and taking upon himself the responsibility for our salvation. Friends, I just, just think about this for a moment. When was the last time you were just simply overwhelmed by the sheer godness of Jesus? The fact that he is divine, that he is God in the flesh, that he is worthy of worship and praise, that he is not just some great prophet or good teacher, that he is not just someone that that was good, that that came to make your life a little better. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the sheer greatness and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ? The eternal God has come to us to save us from our sins. You see, when we start with the Jesus from eternity and not from simply Bethlehem, it makes the Jesus of Bethlehem look all the more glorious. That's why the unity of the Gospels are so important. You wonder why John's kind of this... He doesn't seem to fall in the same line as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, he brings some things to the table that we need to hear and see. Last week we saw from Psalm 138, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. And that is exactly what we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who is high and lifted up, regarding the lowly by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. He is eternal. The baby in Bethlehem is the eternal son of God. Second truth, second observation is he is distinct. See this in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Not only does John want to demonstrate the fact that Jesus is eternal, he wants us to see the full personhood of Christ. 
This language highlights the fact that, that there are distinct beings in the Godhead. This is Trinitarian language. One God, three persons. This is where the Muslims will accuse us of being polytheist, that we worship three gods, not one. According to Scripture, there is one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that that just referred to in, in, a, in a quick glimpse here, don't we? In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God. He was present with God, and we're told, just, to, just for a point of clarity, and He was God. He's with God. There's a distinction made here. We have this picture of an eternal relationship. If he's eternal and he was there in the beginning with God, there's this eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Later on, John's going to talk more about the Holy Spirit. But there is this eternal, perfect relationship between Father and Son. Now listen, it's, it's essential that we understand the Trinity can be a very complex doctrine to try to fathom. In some way, it's, it's beyond our ability to fully understand. It's, it's a mystery in, in some ways, but it's exactly what's revealed in the Scripture. Listen, the Father and Son are distinct beings in the Godhead. They are not different modes of the same God. It, it, there's this heresy out there called modalism. And it's as if God reveals himself differently in, he's God the Father in the Old Testament and God the Son now in the New Testament. Now he's changed modes to God the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that for all of eternity there has been Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony with each other. This is not mere coexistence of a relationship, but rather an active relationship. The idea here really is the word continually was with God. We see a a glimpse there in verse 14. I know we're getting a little ahead and, and cheating on a sermon here in a few weeks. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The Father being perfectly divine, the Son being perfectly divine. Why is this so important to us? See, the perfect, eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is is important on a number of levels. But one implication that we would do well to see even this morning is how this truth ought to even inform human relationships. God is a relational being, and we are created in his image. As a result, there is somewhere down deep in your soul a longing to relate and a longing to connect, a longing to love and be loved. It may look different between introvert and extrovert, but it's there. Even in the introverts, it's there. There's something about our lives being lived out in community, in fellowship, in relationship, in love that displays something beyond us. It displays the beauty and the majesty of the character of God who exists in perfect harmony and perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
You see that longing you have to relate and to love and be loved is the direct result of being created in the image of God who does that perfectly within the Godhead. The love and longing you have for family and friends exists because we were made to love because we were made to be like God. Listen, if God is not three persons in one God living in perfect union and harmony, then human love is totally meaningless. It doesn't have a source. It doesn't have anything to reflect. It, it's, it's meaningless. And so it's important that we see who Jesus is. He is the eternal son that is distinct in his personhood that comes now to execute and deliver this mission that God the Father sent him to accomplish. But not only is he distinct, he is creator. We see that clearly in verse 3, don't we? Speaking of this word, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice in verse 3 he states it positively and negatively, just in case you missed the first part. Having declared that Jesus is the eternal word and a distinct person in the Godhead, he, he now moves to prove this divinity through his works of creation. And the point here is simply to highlight the fact that everything owes it, its existence to this divine word. You, your existence, everything owes its existence to the Son of God. Jesus is the agent of creation. If you were to look in Colossians chapter 1, Paul puts this so beautifully there. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, we read down through verse 20. Speaking of Christ... Paul wrote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For listen, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, right back there in Genesis chapter 1 where it said, In the beginning, God. We know that the eternal Son of God was present. The very baby born in Bethlehem was the same one who created Bethlehem. That star that shone in the sky that that the wise men would eventually follow and find. The baby that they were seeking was the one that created that star. 
So our perspective about who Jesus is begins to be magnified. Several points of application considering what we find here in verse 3. Since Jesus is creator, that means we are accountable to him. Right? If you create something, you're in charge of it. You own it. Right? Except many of you, you create something and the government owns it here. I get it. But usually, if you make something, you, you, have, you have rights to that which you've made. Well, if Jesus is the agent of creation and he made you, he has rights to you. And even greater, the fact that those whom he created, as we read throughout the account there in Genesis, we know that Adam and Eve, as they rebelled against their creator and as they plunged the entire human race into sin, we know that that's been the story of all of our lives, hasn't it? That, that, that sin, the curse, has marked all of us. And, and we are all recipients of this corruption and this brokenness and this bondage to sin and this depravity that, that marks the course of in the entirety of human history. And because of that sin, because of that rebellion that we had against our creator, all of us deserve to be rightly separated from God and rightly judged and condemned by God. Because he's the creator, he has the right to do with his creation everything he he wants. And because of our rebellion, a good and just and right God, a right creator, would hold that, that rebellion accountable, wouldn't he? If you were to refer to him as a judge, as the scripture does, a good judge brings justice to those who are condemned. But the beauty of this story is that this creator to whom we are all accountable is the same one that left the glory of heaven and came to this earth in order to live life as one of us, a life that was marked by righteousness and perfection, a life that reflected the beauty and character of God in all of his, his perfection as he comes and now as he lives out life as a man obedient to the law and yet he dies as a willing sacrifice, as a substitute on a cross to bear the penalty and curse of sin for those who would put their hope and trust in him. This same creator that, to whom we are all accountable is the same one that came to save us from our sin. He is the one that came to bear the curse in our stead. Friend, that is good news. If you're here today and you're not a believer, and you're not a Christian, this is good news. Because it means you can have hope. It means you can have your sins forgiven if you would simply look to this one. The very one who made you is the very same one who came to deliver people just like you. If you'd simply look to him and trust in him, cry out to him in faith for deliverance. Since he is creator, we are all accountable to him. But also, since he is creator, we should honor his creation. You know, he created us all as image bearers, and therefore that matters, that means something in, in, in how we treat one another, right? If we all are created in the image of God, by God, by Christ, by the one who made us, then that means all of us are valuable. 
in all of our diversity, in all of the, 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 the differences that mark us, all of us were made in the image of God, and therefore all of us are valuable because we are image bearers of God, and therefore all of us ought to be cared for as those who are created by Christ. And lastly, but not least, since he is creator, we are called to worship him. We are worship the creator, not the creation. Listen, creation is never to be the object of our worship. Jesus is. He is worthy of our worship and worthy of praise. Listen, this is the one, this is the one who came on this great rescue mission. He is the eternal word. He is distinct in his personhood and he is the creator of the universe. This is, this is the one that came and was born in Bethlehem. But we know that his beginning was not Bethlehem. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is God. God in the flesh. Friend, I just ask you, is that the Jesus you worship? And before you do a quick, oh, of course. Really, is that the Jesus you worship? Is that the perspective you have? And I think that one of the big distractions that we can have in this season, especially because of all, the, all of the, the, the fun things that we do in relationship to this season, is, is that we can begin to have a skewed perspective of who this Jesus is if we're not careful. Is this the Jesus you worship? The eternal son of God, the eternal, the, the eternal one who created the world, the, the one who is God in the flesh. He is the eternal, distinct, divine creator of the world. He's not some holy version of Santa Claus. See, the story of Christmas is not a Hallmark movie set in Bethlehem. It's the story of the eternal divine son who invaded time and space and took up residence with the lowly in order to bring us what we could never gain for ourselves. You know, there are a lot of Jesus-type figures out there in people's minds today. Seems this Jesus of so many is a Jesus who grows smaller and smaller. He's nothing more than a Jesus of human creation, not the Jesus who himself is creator. And John is here to tell us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this Jesus is infinitely more than you can imagine because he is the divine son of God. You get to the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20. John tells us why he writes all that he does. He begins here with the divinity of Christ, and then he begins to explain the ministry and life of Christ. And he gets to the end in chapter 20, and he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things... But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Question number one, do you have life in his name? 
Or have you sought life in some other name? Maybe it's the name Jesus, but it's some other being that you've heard about or conjured up in your mind. It's not the the Jesus we see from the scriptures this morning. Is this the Jesus you know and love? Is this the Jesus that you worship and follow? Friend, if it's not, the call to you today would simply be, to turn from whatever other false notion of Jesus you have and come to trust this, this Jesus. This is the truth of who he is. And if you see him for who he is, you will not find him small at all. Indeed, like Lucy, you'll find that every year you grow, the bigger Jesus will be. Not because he's changed but because you have a deeper awareness and sense of the reality of who he's always been. This eternal, distinct creator of the universe that invaded human history to save sinners to his glory. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus of Christmas. And is that the Jesus that you love and you follow? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great word of truth. We thank you, Lord, that you reveal to us in the scriptures what we so desperately need to see and to know. And Lord, even as these first few verses of John point us to the truth and majesty and glory and beauty of who Jesus is, Father, it's my prayer that we would be captivated by this, that we would be amazed. Father, it may be that we, for many of us, we've just come today and we've, we've not been giving enough credit to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. We, maybe we've, we've been a little influenced by the, the world. Father, the truth is, is, When we behold the truth about Christ, we should be overwhelmed by a sense of his majesty and grace. So, Father, as we conclude our time and as we look to you and know that we have great reason to rejoice this Christmas season, the reason we do so is because we have a God who loves us And a God who is not content to see us destroyed, but a God who loved us so much that you would send your one and only son into this world to be the salvation that we could never achieve for ourselves. Father, would you help us to be overwhelmed by that and humbled by that and thankful? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.